good to be with you all this morning in the house of the Lord. I'd like to, if time permits this morning, take a quick look at a declaration that Jesus made about himself, what it means for everything and for everyone. In the end of John chapter 8, Jesus makes a declaration that changes all of human history. He makes a declaration that changes all of human history. Now, Jesus had a tendency to do this, to change the world. I love the turn of phrase that history is really his story. Everything changed when Jesus came. Jesus was there in the beginning, walking in the garden. Jesus was there at the beginning because nothing was made without him. He will be there in the end. He is already there at the end. The Alpha and the Omega. But he has another name that he declares here in just a moment. We'll get to it. I love names. I love names because it feels like something we have all missed out on. Something of a hobby that, once upon a time, all men completely engaged in. For names didn't used to be transliterations of other languages as they are now. Your name used to just be the definition of your name. Right? So I, quickly, while we were during the song service there, I looked up, because everybody knows what grace means, not to pick on you guys too much, but I was curious what Jared means. I have a nephew named Jared, and I was disappointed I didn't know, because I named all my children based on their meanings and not their um, sound alone. And Jared means descending. And what it really means, it's talk, it was invented around 1000 B.C., uh, when there was a specific time of angels descending upon Israel and making particular visitations while still the time of the prophets. And so when they would refer to an angel descending on earth to do good, you think of the angel at the pool of Bethesda who would come and bring healing in its wings, you would have said, Jared. So when you think of a married couple who are one flesh, you might say that their name could be said, if you're going to take liberties, that by the grace of God, angels have descended with healing in their wings. I think we all can say that that's true right now, at least. But our hope, our hope is that power is not just physical. Our hope is that that power is spiritual. For our sicknesses of the body would be best left broken if we were to choose between that and our spiritual selves. This chapter, John chapter 8, has become very quickly, at least for a time, my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Because there is so many rich debates that happen here, and so many great declarations. The chapter starts out with Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And you start with that, you must, you must uh, think that you're going you're to only be able to uh, get, you know, go down from there. Instead, Jesus goes on and on and has all manner of different conversations with them. He, about nearly a dozen, nearly ten times or so, says to them who the Father is, what his relation to the, to the Father is, and where he's coming from. He has this entire conversation based on how everything he does is coming from the Father. Everything they have to say, he shows them again and again who his father is. And he tells them woefully that their father is the devil. But the trick of that is that behind the scenes, I know I delivered one message out of this uh, to you here before, that he told them both that they were going to die in their sins and be away from him. That's a terrible thing to hear. But it also said during that conversation that many believed on him. And then he turned to those that believed on him and would go on. And we turn to those who believed on him, it says. But he still says that their father was the devil. This is a very difficult thing to unravel. This conversation becomes so deep and so wild. You have to remember when Jesus says to Peter, when you be converted, and then he gives him instruction, right? Because he's telling him more is going to happen as they first hear the word and begin to believe, and then as he changes their lives. But these people are not going to repent of their sins until they commit the sin that we all, in part, have taken part in. 
which is the very crucifixion of Jesus himself. Some of these people in this same city were the ones who cried out who he was on Palm Sunday, and then a week later cried out, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. And this entire process was done that we might see that first off, the Christian walk is not simple. And second off, the walk we have in Jesus, the walk we have in our trust in the Father to keep us to the end, is one that he never fails in. It took even the death of his son as a part of their salvation story, not just as a, the most important part of their salvation, but as a part of their story that their hearts might be broken. And then you remember on the day of Pentecost when they were pricked in the heart, it said, and they were changed. That work had been begun here by Jesus. Because the first time it says of any of them that they believed on him was here, when they were debating with him and saying how great they were, saying that they were not slaves, Jesus said they were slaves to sins. Jesus said they were free. They said that Abraham is their father, they've never been slave to any man. But he then promises them later that they shall be free. He says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And again, that's what he says. The first thing, he spake those to those who believed on him. But again, he goes on to tell them both that they were sinners, ensnared, enslaved, even fathered by the devil, and that they didn't even know who he was because there was no sin in him. He challenged them, saying, who here has convinced me of sin? But then... Then he goes on and finishes by saying, Who will not see death? Verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Now this conversation doesn't change who he's talking to. That's what makes it so confusing. But that's what, in part, makes your life so confusing. There are times when you need to hear God tell you, Depart from me, as he did to Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. But in so doing, he did that for Peter's betterment. That Peter might properly know God. No longer be confused by the wiles of the devil. No longer be waiting for he who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Just waiting there idly like a lamb alone on a hillside to be eaten for one quick meal and forgotten forever. That is where Jesus finds us when he begins this work. But his declaration at the end of this is the thing I want to leave you with. So, as I'm pressed for time, we will jump right into it. At the end here, I'm going to read you the last... 11 verses of John chapter 8, starting in verse 48 and going to verse 59. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead, whom thou makest, I'm sorry, whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, and went out of the temple, and going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We live in a time where superhero stories are very much enjoyed by many. Why is that? Well, the idea of having 
a singular or multiple powers by which you can change the world around you is a fantastic idea. And it's a very real idea. The Bible takes a different set of superhero powers, one of the best of which might be encouragement. You single-handedly can change the world in a way that Superman never could through encouragement. That's another subject I'll get to on another day. But for now, Jesus here was able to, because his day to die had not yet come, because the only way he was ever going to die is if he himself willingly gave up his life. So he just casually... I love the way it puts it. He hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. For this moment, they wanted to kill him. This is the necessary, visceral reaction of all of the enemies of God when they hear who he is. What do I mean by that, who he is? The Bible takes names very seriously. Think about how many times Jesus is named. He's named Emmanuel, God with us, which we're hoping to get to this afternoon at Columbia, if any of you like to come down. He is named many, many things, but here he says something that is different from every other name. He'll say later in one of the letters to the Philippians, or in the letters to the Philippians, that he will be given a name above every name, that at that name every knee shall bow and declare Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord. What they're saying there is not just that he is the ruler, but that he is the Father in every important way. He is equal to him. Hear what he says at the end here, and we'll go back hopefully into some of that time pending, but I want to lean heavily into the most important thing he says here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's his name. There's nothing wrong with you when you pray, referring to God as I am. It might more properly put us into a frame of mind to Understand to whom we speak. But Jesus didn't tell us we have to do that, and so I'm not telling you it's a requirement. But I would say that you should remember who he says he is here and who the Father said he is when you pray, my Father who's in heaven. Because he gave you a term of gentleness, of endearment, one that both leaves you dependent upon him, but also leaves you with access to him. These children completely depend on him. Something happens to me, their life will change dramatically. They depend on me. They also sometimes, maybe not often enough, fear me. Because they know my law and they know what I expect of them. But they have, with that, bound up in that relationship an intimacy that no one else on earth has. Unless maybe I adopt them. That's what we're given to God. But who is it that you're given this relationship of father and child with? Is this declaration here, the... I am. The I am. Just want to turn real quick to Exodus, to the origin of this story, of this name being revealed on the earth. It's in Exodus 3, verses 14 to 16. Moses was quite a fellow. He was called the meekest of men. God takes pleasure in taking the meek of this world and raising them up. He, outside of Jesus, might be the man who changed the world, human history, more than anyone else ever himself. Because God raised him up and used him in a mighty way. But here, God reveals himself to him. He asks God, when God sends him to him the first time, you all, I'm sure, know the story. 
But God says to him, certainly I will be with thee. In verse 12, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. And they say unto me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? What is his name? For beloved names tell you about a person, right? You know that I'm a father. That changes what type of person I am. Just to use the example we just used. But what someone's named is their inner person. Again, this is, a, I think, a very sad part of culture today. But maybe it's my personal crusade to change that for future generations. But for now, know that when you hear an attribute of God, that name is who he is. Sometimes he's revealed in his actions. Sometimes he's revealed in his testimonies, in his judgments. Sometimes who God is is revealed in his law. It's why it's right for us to cry out that his law is pure and that we should consider it because it is to the edifying of the soul and the sharpening of the mind and spirit. These things all teach you about him, but his names, they tell you more about God than any of those things, I think. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I am has sent me unto you. What does that mean? If there's anything you are looking to daydream about this week, if you're full up of thinking about things like Minecraft and video games, unless you guys are on different things than my children, if you're full up of considering the various sports and political events of the week and all the pictures we've seen online and all the things of work and the matters of home, and you're looking for something just to daydream about, I would implore you, please, consider what it means that he is I am. What does it mean? Well, it means that he is self-existing in part. That's part of it, right? It means that no matter what, he is. All of you, unless he comes back, are going to die. All of you are fading. Our bodies grow weaker and weaker. Much of our prayer requests relate to how we are aging, how we must age, because none of us have the spark of life inside ourselves. That's another one of the things that Jesus revealed in this chapter. He has life within himself. He was revealing something very strange about the whole universe, that he was like God and that he himself existed. He himself was, I am. It was a forerunner to this information that God can't die. He is so full of life that life is all life that exists is merely a reflection of him. It says by him, we live and move and have our being. So we say that's by him, right? We know that we are right now upheld by him. If he just stopped upholding your life, you would die immediately. If he stopped giving you and feeding you that life that is so necessary to you. We live in a time when God's power given to us is more around you than maybe ever before. See the lights? You know that if the power goes out, that you no longer have access to it, and instantly there is no more life. Right? But the power that we look at, ironically, comes from things that God created that are presently being destroyed. Right? So the fading of God's creation provides more light than anything the enemy could ever do. It provides more life than anything the enemy could ever do. God made a world so full of life, it is almost beyond imagining. Now remember that the potter is not the clay. That who he is is so much more than what he creates. He is. He is. Which means that when this whole world has come and gone to him, it will have been as nothing. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. To him, this is just a poof poof, right? 
the whole six or 7,000 years of creation, if you date it by the Bible's time, has been as nothing to him. And that doesn't mean that the things that happen and the people that we are is nothing. All he has done is proved otherwise. But I want you to remember just how much God is. Just how much he is. He is the I am. And this doesn't just mean he is ever-present with life. It means he's ever-present with life always. In Revelation, he's referred to as the one who was and is and is to come. Why? Because he is the I am at all time. Through all eternity past to all eternity future. The company I work at now, I chose when I was looking for a job for a number of reasons. There was uh, quite a few factors. One of them was there was a set of fathers and a set of sons, and they were in complete harmony. When they interviewed me, there was uh, three of the four were interviewing me, and their questions were completely in harmony. And so for that reason, I thought, these guys are strong. Uh, many of them are young. I'm going to hitch my saddle to this wagon. I'm going I'm to just I'm gonna ride with these guys. I'm going to give them what I've got because I'm hoping they're going to take me as far as I can go. When it comes to the matter of life, which is the most important thing, if you can just have, hold on to one thing, hold on to as the woman did grab onto Jesus' feet, just to go where he's going to have some of that life, know that wherever he is, he is the I am. He is full of life and life abundantly. Now, that could be really good. It could be really bad. Man likes to say that it's really good that God is good because God is God. God is God, no matter what, no matter what his attributes are, no matter what his features are, no matter how he elects to treat his world. If he was harsh and cruel, if his love was that of the types of things that people like to put into horror movies, that would be the world. If he was unjust, he would still be God. But God is just. Now that's good, and that's really bad. It's really bad because all of you were shapen in iniquity in your mother's womb, and all of you have declared war on God and have been found sinners, as it says, in the hands of an angry God. And if he was only just and harsh and cruel in his justice, he would be right and he would be God and he would be unstoppable because he is I am. But, praise be to God because he also is love. Praise be to God because he also is love. And the trouble is figuring out exactly how he applies this. Because remember, you're looking at God. The fact that you can think about God at all is miraculous. Who are you? Do the worms consider the goodness and graciousness of God? I think they do. I think they react in some way. But can they consider the difference between his justice and his love? No. Do the apes? Do the lions? No. You're able to think about God as who he is. And so when these attributes are revealed, I implore you to please remember the fact that you can enjoy them is proof of how much he loves you that he revealed the best thing in all the universe to you which is him so he reveals to you that he is the I am he is full of power and grace that's going to get into names and the changing of Abraham, Abram to Abraham and uh, God's um, revealing of a few other things I think we're out of time but I want to leave you with this if Jesus here declares something that is true which he did think about it hypothetically what it means is that when he declares that we are cursed to die in our sins if we do not believe, that is the source of all life in the universe, declaring something that is the most serious thing you have ever considered. There's nothing else in your life that's more serious than that. To die in your sins separated from him is fully final. 
it is ominous, and it is fearful, and it is right. But then, on the other side, if he promises that you will be free indeed, as we just read, then you shall be free indeed. He is and was and is to come. That means that you will be freed all the way back to the beginning and all the way forward forever. Forever. The terms of God are quite final and quite full because he is the I am. His opinions do not fade. His thoughts do not change. He is who he is. He can't change. Which means if you learn something about him that he did 3,000 years ago, you learn exactly how he will react today. And so if he was merciful then, you can trust that he's merciful now. If he says his mercies are new every morning, you know that it is the source of life that never gets tired. His arm never gets short. He never gets tired of being merciful. And if he connects keeping his word with never tasting death, I would strongly recommend holding on to this with everything you have. Trick yourself. Make it around you. Post it on your walls, on your doorframe. Put it in your ears, in the things that you listen to. Read it morning and night. Talk about it wherever you can. Because keeping and holding this, he says, connects you to something unstoppable. His life. Now, we know, we know the teachings of this place, that we depend upon him to make that happen. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have this right visceral reaction to hold to his word with all that we have. And if we don't, it just means we don't understand. That's it. The terms are set. And to hold to his word, to keep his word, means never tasting death. But more than that, you've heard when Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. He refuses to honor himself. Why is it you're called to honor your father and mother? Why is that? Why is it we're called to love our enemies, to raise them up? Why is it that we're called to encourage the weak, not fix every problem? Why is it we're called to cast our cares on the Father and not solve them all ourselves? Cast our cares on Jesus? Because he cares for us. Because he designed a world where honor grows and magnifies and magnifies like a fire being lit in all the world until it's all on fire with honor and glory for God in heaven. The I am, the source of life, has said that the best way for you to be near to him is to follow his example. And his example as the I am was to honor the Father. And then to honor them by answering their questions. They accuse him of being mixed blood, of being a mudblood, and of having a devil. Think about that for a second. And what does he do? He answers them with the words of life. Those who are going to try to kill him in a moment. He gives the great secret of the universe. That the I am has come, made himself like us, condescended to our lowest state, and walked in humility, honoring the Jews of that time, and revealing his word to you in this time. Praise God. Thank you. Brother John didn't know it, but he was leading into my, uh, what I'd like to speak on this morning. Uh, pray the Lord will bless this. Grace, Jared, this is for you and for the rest of us. But I hope this will be a blessing to, to them. I hope the Lord will bless it for a few minutes. Lamentations chapter 3. You've heard me speak on this before, but maybe not a whole message or... Uh, the focal point, but here's some great, great verses that we'll look at. Uh, Lamentation chapter 3. It is of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed, because his compassions fail not. 
And then here's the verse. His mercies, his compassions. It says they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It says his mercies, his compassions are new every morning. I love the morning time. I can't wait to get up in the morning. I wish I didn't even have to go to bed because I get so excited about getting up and I want to see the sunrise. And this morning I had the opportunity to see the sunrise and it was absolutely beautiful. I enjoy watching the sunrise. And and one thing that I've noticed about the sunrising is there's not I've never seen the same sunrise twice. Never. It was absolutely beautiful this morning. The way that God positions the clouds and the sun behind it to to come up. And and I thought that as the sun was coming up and it was different angles and it was just a a beautiful sight. Brother Brother Compton used to say that's God's paintbrush and such a beautiful scene. That as it's different every single day, so are our situations and our challenges. There's not any two days that we have that are exactly the same. The needs that you had yesterday are different from the needs that you have today. And the needs that you're going to have tomorrow are different from the needs that you have today or that you had yesterday. And yet God, who knows our needs that we have every single day, he has designed something to help us in the middle of those needs And he tailor makes it and he calls it mercies and compassions. And so he says, as our needs change, as they are different, so are his mercies and compassion and grace that he has upon us. When we're young, we have different needs than when we're a little bit older. When we're young, we need to know a right way to go. And God gives us his word and gives us instruction. He gives us counselors. But he's promised that his grace is sufficient for us in every age or stage in our life. And so for young people, God's grace is there. His compassion, his mercy is there. When they face specific challenges and struggles, God blesses with a measure of grace to meet that need. Young parents come along and have children and the needs change. Parents need wisdom. They need direction. They need encouragement. They need strength. They need God's grace to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Young husbands and wives need a measure of God's grace to be able to face the challenges that they experience in marriage and in work, in the workplace and in the peers and the peer pressure that might come along. And so the needs are different even at that stage in our life. And then as we get just a little bit older, something happens called old age it kicks in. It, it kind of hits us around 60, I think. Now, I don't know about you, maybe it's 70 or 80, but for me, it was kind of about 60. I was kind of on cruise control until then, and then all of a sudden, things changed. And yet, God gives us grace in those times. As things change with us 
than our bodies. God gives us grace to be able to endure, persevere, overcome, continue without getting discouraged and pitching in the towel. And then when we get to old age and there's a whole host of new challenges that come along, God gives us the grace, the mercy, the strength, the compassion to finish our course. And sometimes he gives us some examples. Think about Brother Oris Jackson. He, he finished that last 11th hour serving God right up until God called him home. Think about Elder Compton, who was still preaching at 102 years of age and had a desire to be an encouragement to other people. And 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 death had to sort of catch up with him because he was he was still traveling around and preaching and and being used of God up past 102 years of age. And and so he finished his course going full steam ahead, serving God. And God gave him grace to do that. Think about Sister Perry, who who just flew past all of those afflictions and challenges, at least in her own mind. She she had them, but she didn't let them bog her down. And and she went up past 104 years of age and was not filled with complaint or bitterness about the afflictions of old age or sorrow. And she just went forward, finished her course, going full steam ahead. And God gave her the grace and the mercy and the compassion to experience that. Well, I'd like to look at this, look at the setting for just a minute. And then I'd like to look at those individual points. There's about four or five that I'd like to look at that I think help us every single day. I want you when you, uh, this will be a blessing to you. When you see the sunrise in the morning, when you see it come up, I want you to look at the setting, the scene of the sunrise and realize that the clouds sometimes and sometimes they're thick, sometimes they're dark. Sometimes you can't hardly see the sun. Sometimes they're heavy. Sometimes they block the sun. That those can sometimes represent the different challenges that we experience in our life. And yet when we see the sun, it reminds us, it should remind us of the mercy and the compassion and the grace of Almighty God. And just as diverse as every single sunrise that comes up, His mercies are just as diverse and just as adequate every single day. So the author of this writes this from the standpoint of prison, and he's Jerusalem has been uh, destroyed and and. Uh, The Lord's people have been in great bondage and great despair. And it's one thing when we experience challenges in our life, when we experience the the setbacks or the heartaches that come within our own life. But then it's another thing when we look around us and it seems like that it's all around. And so when Jeremiah wrote this, not only was Jeremiah experiencing great challenges in his own life, every direction that he looked, it looked like that there were great challenges all around him. And so he had challenges upon challenges to the point that he even became in his mind for a season. He became convinced that he was a target For the arrows of the Lord. And he even describes that. He talks about the judgment of God. About the wrath of God. And as you start off. He 
he talks about the Lord's people and, 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 and Jerusalem. And he says, how does the city sit solitary that was so full of people? He, he talks about the, the great judgment and how that there's mourning in Zion and mourning in Jerusalem. And there's, there's no encouragement. There's no, uh, it doesn't look like things will ever be any better. And I remember my grandmother telling she would talk about the depression and and they were right up in the in the middle of the depression. And she said the one thing about the depression, she said it was hard, but she says we never really thought that it would be any better. We thought it would just always be that way. And she said, we never thought it would be better. And that's what Jeremiah is saying right here. He says, every direction that I look around, it looks dark, it looks bleak, and even my own life. And I believe that I'm experiencing uh, the the hand of a chastening God. And so he, he sort of reveals to us what his thought or his mindset is right here. In chapter 3, he starts out and he says, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and he hath brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me as he turned, he turneth his hand against me all the day. And then he says, not only is it all around me, but he says, my flesh and my skin hath made me old. He hath broken my bones. This is the mindset of Jeremiah who's writing this, uh, this, this letter for us right here. He says, it looks like that, that God is, is against me. He says, it, it, he, he has very descriptive language about his condition right here. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. He's just saying right here, my way is hard. My way is difficult. He says, when I cry to him and I shout, it seems like that my prayer is shut out. He shutteth out my prayer. He says, uh, he hath enclosed my ways with a hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me, this describes, he says, he was unto me as a bear lying in wait, as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways. He hath pulled me in pieces and he hath made me desolate. It sounds like in Jeremiah's mind, at least, and sometimes it's in our mind. Sometimes it's in our life. Sometimes it's all around us, but whether it's in our mind or it's all around us, it's a real thing. And sometimes we feel like that maybe the hand of a, uh, of a powerful God is upon our life. But then Jeremiah comes down and he changes his thinking. The circumstances don't change. The situation that he's in doesn't change. But his thinking changes. And let's look at it. There's about five things here that he mentions that we're going to get to right here. He says, I was in a derision all to all my people. He said, he hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. That's a, that's a, a bitter herb. Um, he hath broken my teeth with gravel. He hath covered me with ashes and thou hast removed my soul far from peace. He says, and I forgot prosperity. And then he says, and, and he's, he's, he's sort of getting to the, the bottom here. He said, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Jeremiah says, everything around me is bad. Everything in my own life, 
even my own thinking, even my experience, even my memory. He says, and and then he gets to the point that he says, and my hope is gone. That's a pretty sad situation to be in when the situation seems like that it's hopeless. It is. You might have in your life some things that seem like they're hopeless situations. And Satan may convince you, like Jeremiah experienced right here, that there is no hope. I want to tell you, first of all, that God is a God of hope. You always have hope, not in the situation, not in yourself, But you always, always, always have hope in the Lord. You can always have hope that things can be better. We've got a perfect example of that with Grace and Jared. I mean, we might get reports that we're not encouraging, but we had hope in the Lord. I tell you, one of I told Brother Jared, I said, one of your biggest cheerleaders was Susan. That Susan was praying and pulling for Grace and Jared every single day. And when she would get a good report, I'm telling you, it just it just it did a world of good to Susan. And, and, and I told Grace and Jared this. I said, when you called Susan and you talked to her the first time on the phone after you'd progressed to the point that I think they were in their same hospital room. I said, I just want you to know Susan called me and she was so excited. And I said, I believe you probably added 10 years to Susan's life today because it meant so much to Susan. To hear the good report. Susan never lost hope. That God was going to intervene. In the life of Grace and Jared. And he did. God is the God of hope. Now look at this. This is so good. I'm just going to hit these five points right here. You go home and write this down. Read it. It's all real good. It's all real good. But this is the best part. That we're going to touch on right here. Says. uh, Remembering mine affliction, my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Now, one key to that verse right there is the word soul. And we're going to touch on that here in just a minute. Therefore, this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. So he had just gone from a situation of not having any hope to now he says, there's something that I remembered and that memory of an experienced triggered hope. And he mentions something else right here. He mentions the soul. He says, therefore, I recall this to mind. Therefore, have I hope. And so then he tells us what the hope is that he has. Now, here's something to remember because he starts out and he references the soul And he ends up about three verses down and he references the soul as well. And it's not just an accident that the word soul is tucked in there. You may lose all of your health at some point. You may lose all of your earthly possessions at some point. You might even lose all of your friends at some point. You might lose your family at some point. But there's not anything That is going to affect your soul. Your soul is that inward part within you. 
that nobody can take away, nobody can destroy, nobody can hinder. So no matter what's going on around you, you've got something on the inside that God has given you, and that's your soul. And that soul is going to take you all the way to the end here in this life, and it doesn't end there. It's going on home to glory. So you may lose your health, you may lose your provisions, you may lose your acquaintances, you may lose some of the accomplishments that you've had here in this life, but the soul that's on the inside, it can't be taken from you nor destroyed. And he mentions soul here multiple times. But then he says, and this is so good, I hope it's a blessing to you. He says, I remembered something. He said, I remembered some of the mercies of God in times past. I remembered some of the blessings of God upon his people. I remember that God had sustained me, that he delivered me, that he had helped me, that he was with me. And he said, I thought back upon those deliverances in times past. And he says, when I thought on those things, all of a sudden, I ended up that I had some hope. I didn't have hope in myself. I didn't have hope in those circumstances themselves. But my hope is in the Lord. That's where our hope lies. Now, here's the real good part. Jeremiah said, I thought back. I remembered God had blessed. He had sustained. I remembered God had favored his people. And he says, therefore, I have hope. And then he says, I really deserved to be consumed. And every single one of us here, that's what we deserve. Aren't you thankful we don't get what we deserve? That's mercy. God gives us what we don't deserve, and that's grace. God gives us compassion, and that's tender mercies. Of Almighty God. He says it's of his mercy that we're not consumed. And he says, and it's also because his compassion or tender mercies, they fell not. He says, the only reason that we're still here today, the only reason that our soul is protected, the only reason that we've made it this far in life is that his mercies are, 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 are that, that it's of the, God's mercies that were not consumed and because his compassions fell not. And then this is what I absolutely love about this right here. He says his mercies, his compassions, they're of God. And he says the mercies and compassions that God has. We've already referenced the, the lesson in that by the rising of the sun. He says they're they're new every morning. So no matter what your challenge is today or what your challenge is going to be tomorrow, what your challenge is going to be 20 years down the road. God's mercies are new and they're fresh and they'll help you in your time of need. He's promised that he's going to give us grace sufficient for our every need. And by the way, not only are his mercies new for each one of us, but that applies for your children. That applies for your grandchildren. That applies to your parents. That God's mercies. The psalmist says his mercies are from everlasting to everlasting. 
You're not going to deplete the mercies of Almighty God. His mercies are new and they're tailor made for you every single day. He says they're new every morning. And then he just says something. He tucks it in right here and he says, here's the basis for the mercies. He says, it's not because you're so deserving. It's not because you have such tremendous faith and you believe so strong in him. He doesn't grant you mercy because of that. It's not because you've had tremendous hope and you are convinced that it's going to happen. He says it's based on one thing. Great is not our faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I get oftentimes real discouraged about my faithfulness. But you never get discouraged about his faithfulness. He said all of this, the grace, the mercy, the compassion that will see you through is based on the faithfulness of Almighty God. Great is thy faithfulness. There's a there's a song that I like. Uh, the uh, you may have heard it. I was mentioning this to Jared this morning. The Oak Ridge Boys sing this. You can Google it and see. It's a great song. They do a great job singing it. I'll just quote a couple of verses on it. Real good message. It says, time is filled with swift transition. Naught of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal and hold to God's unchanging hand. The chorus goes on down. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. It's a good lesson in the song. I like the song. I especially enjoy hearing them sing it. But I'm thankful that when sometimes we can't even reach up and grab his hand. That he's holding us. And he's going to hold us up. And he's going to have mercy upon us. And he's going to have grace. And so no matter what we're going to face. God's unchanging hand. Holds us up. May God bless you.